Book Two, Chapter Six of My Antonia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Crystal Layton. My Antonia by Willa Cather. Book One, Hired Girls, Chapter Six. Winter comes down savagely over a little town on the prairie. The wind that sweeps in from the open country slips away all the leafy screens that hide one yard from another in summer, and the houses seem to draw closer together. The roofs that look so far away across the green treetops now stare at you in the face, and they are so much uglier than when their angles were softened by vines and shrubs. In the morning, when I was fighting my way to school against the wind, I couldn't see anything but the road in front of me. But in the late afternoon when I was coming home, the town looked bleak and desolate to me. The pale, cold light of the winter sunset did not beautify. It was like the light of truth itself. When the smoky clouds hung low in the west and the red sun went down behind them, leaving a pink flush on the snowy roofs and the blue drifts, then the wind sprang up afresh with a kind of bitter song, as if it said, This is reality whether you like it or not. All those frivolities of summer, the light and shadow, the living mask of green that trembled over everything, they were lies, and this is what was underneath. This is the truth. It was as if we were being punished for loving the loveliness of summer. If I loitered on the playground after school, or went to the post office for the mail and lingered to hear the gossip about the cigar stand, it would be growing dark by the time I came home. The sun was gone, the frozen street stretched long and blue before me, the lights were shining pale in kitchen windows, and I could smell the suppers cooking as I passed. Few people were abroad, and each one of them was hurrying toward a fire. The glowing stoves in the houses were like magnets. When one passed, an old man, one could see nothing of his face but a red nose sticking out between a frosted beard and a long plush cap. The young men capered along with their hands in their pockets, and sometimes tried to slide on the icy sidewalk. The children in the bright hoods and comforters never walked, but always ran from the moment they left their door, beating their mittens against their sides. When I got as far as the Methodist church, I was about halfway home. I can remember how glad I was when there happened to be a light in the church, and the painted glass windows shone out at us as we came along the frozen street. In the winter bleakness a hunger for color came over people, like the Laplanders craving for fats and sugar. Without knowing why, we used to linger on the sidewalk outside the church when the lamps were lighted early for choir practice or prayer meeting, shivering and talking until our feet were like lumps of ice. The crude reds and greens and blues of that colored glass held us there. On winter nights, the lights in the Harling's window drew me like the painted glass. Inside that warm, roomy house, there was color, too. After supper, I used to catch up my cap, stick my hands in my pockets, and dive through the willow hedge as if witches were after me. Of course, if Mr. Harling was at home, if his shadow stood out in the blind of the west room, I did not go in, but turned and walked home by the long way, through the street, wondering what book I should read as I sat down with the two old people. Such disappointments only gave greater zest to the nights when we acted charades, or had a costume ball in the back parlor, when Sally always dressed like a boy. Frances taught us to dance that winter, and she said from the first lesson that Auntie would make the best dancer among us. On Saturday nights, Mrs. Harling used to play the old operas for us, Martha, Norma, Rigoletto, telling us a story while she played. Every Saturday night was like a party. The parlor, the back parlor, and the dining room were warm and brightly lighted with comfortable chairs and sofas and gay pictures on the walls. One always felt at ease there. Antonia brought her sewing and sat with us. She was already beginning to make pretty clothes for herself. 
after the long winter evenings on the prairie, when Ambrosia's sudden silences and her mother's complaints, the Harlings' house seemed, as she said, like heaven to her. She was never too tired to make taffy or chocolate cookies for us. If Sally whispered in her ear, or Charlie gave her three winks, Tony would rush into the kitchen and build a fire on the range in which she had already cooked three meals that day. While we sat in the kitchen waiting for the cookies to bake or the taffy to cool, Nina used to coax Antonia to tell her stories, about the calf that broke its leg, or how Yulka saved her little turkeys from drowning in the freshet, or about old Christmases and weddings in Bohemia. Nina interrupted the stories about the crush fancifully, and in spite of our derision, she cherished a belief that Christ was born in Bohemia a short time before the Shimerdas left that country. We all liked Tony's stories. Her voice had a peculiarly engaging quality. It was deep, a little husky, and one always heard the breath vibrating behind it. Everything she said seemed to come right out of her heart. One evening, when we were picking out kernels for walnut taffy, Tony told us a new story. Mrs. Harling, did you ever hear about what happened up in the Norwegian settlement last summer when I was thrashing there? We were at Iverson's, and I was driving one of the grain wagons. Mrs. Harling came out and sat down among us. Could you throw the wheat into the bin yourself, Tony? She knew what heavy work it was. Yes, ma'am, I did. I could shovel just as fast that fat Andern boy that drove the other wagon. One day it was just awful hot. When we got back to the field from dinner, we took things kind of easy. The men put in the horses and got the machine going, and old Iverson was up on the deck cutting bands. I was sitting against a straw stack trying to get some shade. My wagon wasn't going out first and somehow I felt the heat awful that day. The sun was so hot like I was going to burn the whole world up. After a while I see a man come across the stubble, and when he got close I see it was a tramp. His toes stuck out of his shoes, and he hadn't shaved for a long while, and his eyes were awful red and wild, like he had some sickness. He comes right up and begins to talk like he knows me already. He says, The ponds in this country's done got so low a man couldn't drown himself in one of them. I told him nobody wanted to drown themselves, but if we didn't have rain soon, we'd have to pump water for the cattle. Oh, cattle, he says. Y'all take care of your cattle. Ain't you got no beer here? I told him he'd have to go to Bohemian for beer. The Norwegians didn't have none when they thrashed. My God, he says. So it's Norwegians now, is it? I thought this was America. Then he goes up to the machine and yells out to old Iverson. Hello, partner, let me up there. I can cut bands and I'm tired of tramping. I won't go no farther. I tried to make signs to Ole because I thought that man was crazy and might get the machine stopped up. But Ole, he was glad to get down out of the sun and chafe. It gets down your neck and sticks to you something awful when it's hot like that. So Ole jumped down and crawled under one of the wagons for shade, and the tramp got on the machine. He cut bands all right for a few minutes, and then Mrs. Harling... He waved his hand at me and jumped head first right into the thrash machine after that wheat. I begun to scream and the men run to stop the horses, but the belt had sucked him down, and by the time they got her stopped he was all beat and cut to pieces. He was wedged in so tight it was a hard job to get him out, and the machine ain't never worked right since. Was he clear dead, Tony? we cried. Was he dead? Well, I guess so. There now, Nina's all upset. We won't talk about it. Don't you cry, Nina. No old tramp will get you while Tony's here. Mrs. Harling spoke up sternly. Stop crying, Nina, or I'll always send you upstairs when Antonia tells us about the country. Did they never find out where he came from, Antonia? Never, ma'am. 
He hadn't been seen nowhere except the little town they call Conway. He tried to get beer there, but there wasn't any saloon. Maybe he came on a freight, but the brakeman hadn't seen him. They couldn't find no letters nor nothing on him. Nothing but an old penknife in his pocket, and the wishbone of a chicken wrapped up in a piece of paper, and some poetry. Some poetry? we exclaimed. I remember, said Francis. It was the old oaken bucket cut out of a newspaper and nearly worn out. Old Irison brought it into the office and showed it to me. Now wasn't that strange, Mrs. Francis? Tony asked thoughtfully. What would anybody want to kill themselves in summer for? And thrashing time, too. It's nice everywhere, then. So it is, Antonia, said Mrs. Harling heartily. Maybe I'll go home and help you thrash next summer. Isn't that taffy nearly ready to eat? I've been smelling it a long while. There's a basic harmony between Antonia and her mistress. They had strong, independent natures, both of them. They knew what they liked and were not always trying to imitate other people. They loved children and animals and music, and rough play and digging in the earth. They liked to prepare rich, hearty food, and to see people eat it, to make us soft, white beds and to see youngsters asleep in them. They ridiculed conceited people, and were quick to help unfortunate ones. Deep down in each of them there's a kind of hearty duality, a relish of life, not over-delicate, but very invigorating. I never tried to define it, but I was distinctly conscious of it. I could not imagine Antonia living for a week in any other house in Blackhawk than the Harlingses. End of chapter 6 Recording by Crystal Layton